you have a copy of scripture, we're in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Book of Hebrews chapter 10. This morning we're going to look at verses 19 through 25 from the book of Hebrews. I'd invite you to turn there. Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 25. This morning we will from these verses, talk about the confident practice of our faith. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Let's pray for the message this morning. Father, thank you for your word. I pray this morning as we look into it, that it would be applied to our hearts and our lives. That, Father, we would understand the confident practice of our faith. And we'll see what that looks like for us. And Lord, that we wouldn't be ashamed to practice our faith in a world that desperately needs to see people that are true followers of Jesus Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the modern evangelical church today, there is a grave mistake that is being made in which we de-emphasize theology and we overemphasize pragmatics. And so we hear sermons being preached on topics like, how can I best manage my money? Or how can I raise my children? Which, you know, I could use some advice on that. Or how can I get a better job? We don't want anything to do with doctrine. We just want to know what works and what doesn't work. In fact, we often think theology is dangerous and will only divide people. Even this year, in the electing for the Southern Baptist president, there is a division that is largely doctrinally based. And people on one side will say, um, don't give me theology, that's not what we need at this time. In fact, somebody even said that to me. In 1976, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book titled, how should we then live? The purpose of the book was to reveal how ideas as they have been embraced or not embraced have shaped the rise and decline in the Western culture. In the opening of the book, this is what Francis Schaeffer writes in 1976. What people are in their thought world determines how they act. The results of their thought world flow through their fingers or from their tongues into the external world. This is true of Michelangelo's chisel, and it is true of a dictator's sword. This is how the New Testament presents matters to us. And the reason why so much of the Bible is devoted to doctrine and what we must know and believe, because there are consequences to the truths that we read in Scripture. The New Testament does not ever divorce doctrine from deeds. And if we think it does, we're just being silly. What we believe has an impact on how we behave. But today we live in a time that says it really doesn't matter what we believe, but it matters how we believe it. In other words, any belief system must be a belief system with tolerance towards other beliefs that are diametrically opposed to that belief. However, the apostles demanded 
faithfulness to the truths of God that was revealed to them and to the prophets before them. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul lays out theological truths. Then in chapters 4 through 6, he gives the application of those theological truths. In Romans chapters 1 through 11, Paul does the exact same thing. And then he gives the applications of those truths in chapter 12. We must come to an understanding of who God is and who we are and what God has accomplished for us in Christ, which gives us a direction for how it is that we practice our faith as believers. Why is theology so important? Listen to the words of Paul from his letter to the church in Galatia. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a different gospel, one that is contrary to what we have already preached to you, then let that person be accursed. You think theology is important to Paul? To deny the truth, even with the best intentions, is to rebelliously reject God and suffer eternal condemnation. Let, let that person, the, the words actually would be, let that person be damned. There. Wow. Strong language from Paul concerning theology. The author of Hebrews follows along with the rest of Scripture. It gives us doctrine throughout the book. But he interrupts the doctrinal themes to apply, to apply it. But the majority of the book up until this point has been focused on doctrine. Think about it in those first four chapters, he focused in on Jesus Christ being superior to everyone in his person. And then from chapter 5 through chapter 10, verse 18, he shows who, or he shows how Christ is superior to, to everyone in his priesthood. Now, based upon those truths for the rest of the book, he reveals to us how Christ's superiority should impact the practice of our faith. So he sets out to prove Christ is superior in every way to everyone for pretty much every reason. And now he says, because Christ is superior in this way, this is how that theology should impact the practice of our faith. In fact, the confidence practice of our faith in these verses has us drawing near to God, holding fast to the confession of our hope, and stirring one another towards love and good deeds. In verses 19 through 21, the author gives us the summarization of our position in Christ. And there are two vital truths that he delivers to us. And then in verses 22 through 25, we see that our position should affect our practice. He says, here's your position. Now it should affect the practice of your life. What he says to the church is, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider. So first, let's see this morning our confidence in Christ. Our confidence in Christ. As we look at verses 19 through 21, we recognize that the author presents these two vital truths for us. So let's recognize before we get to those vital truths that verse 19 starts with this word, therefore. Therefore, and so the author is saying, since Christ has accomplished everything that is necessary for our sanctification, because that's what he just taught, since Christ has accomplished everything for our sanctification, therefore, because there's nothing to hinder us, and, and there's every reason for us to draw near to God, therefore, so we draw near to God because of what Christ has done. So we have these two truths. Or one could say we have these two possessions. Or we have these two things that we can do because of Christ. The first is this. That we have access to God through the blood of Jesus. We have access to God through the blood of Jesus. So our confidence is based on what Christ has done. And based on what Christ 
has done, we can confidently come to God. If you remember back to verse 16 of chapter 4, the author spoke of drawing near with confidence to the throne of grace. But here he changes the language and says that we draw near with, with boldness to enter the holy place. We have confidence to enter the holy of holies, a place that no one could ever go before. Only the high priest could ever enter the Holy of Holies. And even then, it was only once a year. It was blocked off from everyone by a thick veil. And the concept that the author is giving is this radical concept, especially to any Jew that is listening to what he has to say. The thought of going into the very presence of God was absolutely foreign to them. But he does not only say that we can enter the presence of God. He doesn't just stop there and say, hey, guess what, guys? You get to enter the presence of God. But he says that we enter into the presence of God with confidence. Now, this idea of confidence to enter into the presence of God is not like some sort of arrogance. In fact, our ability to be able to enter into the presence of God has nothing to do with us. It's, it's not internal fortitude. It's not something like we can work this up to be able to enter the presence. I just got to get enough confidence so I can enter into the presence of God. It has nothing to do with us, but it has everything to do with the blood of Jesus Christ. We have not earned the right to enter into the presence of God. But the blood of Jesus is the meritorious cause which procures our right of entrance into the presence of God. The blood of Jesus has satisfied the just penalty of God that He imposed on our sin. And so we do not approach God with some sort of good works or some sort of confidence in ourselves or by our own merit, but only by the merit of the blood of Jesus Christ we can confidently come into the presence of God. Now look at verse 20. The author gives more detail on how it is that we are able to approach God. In fact, he says it like this. The new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. In order to understand this, we must realize that the author is using some Old Testament language. The highest privilege of fallen man is to have access into the presence of a holy God. And the only way that we can do it is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now it's, it's interesting. Because verse 20 states, the new and living way. That word for new is really newly slain. Our approach to God has been open to us because Jesus Christ was put to death. We can come to God because Jesus Christ was slain for our sin. And therefore, we have presence, we have access to God through the blood of Jesus. Secondly, we have a great high priest over the house of God. Second truth, we have a great high priest over the house of God. Look at verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now, as we've said, the book of Hebrews is the only book of the Bible to develop the theme of Jesus as high priest. And as we have seen, as a superior high priest, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins and fulfilled everything that the Levitical priesthood demanded. And beyond that, as we've already seen over and over again, Jesus is our high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, making him superior to every single Levitical priest. And he sits, as we've already seen, at the right hand of God, interceding on the behalf of his people. What a glorious truth that Jesus Christ is intervening for us. Now this verse says, the house of God. The house of God, that we have a high priest over the house of God. Now, the house of God is a reference to believers. Oftentimes, we think that God dwells in a building. And perhaps, 
We would even use a verse like this to say, well, well, see, God dwells in the church. And you know what? That is, that is partially true. After all, God is omnipresent. He dwells everywhere. That doesn't mean he dwells in everything, by the way. It means that he is everywhere. Don't go around saying that God's like in the piano and stuff like that, because that's just heresy. But he dwells everywhere. But the church building is not where God tabernacles in Scripture. You understand that? God does not dwell in tabernacles or temples or anything made by human hands. But He dwells in the hearts of His people. God doesn't take up dwelling in the church. We are the, we are the temple of the living God individually. That God has His residence in us. That the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. God the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. But it is also true corporately as we gather together to worship. So we're gathered here together this morning as saints. We're gathered together corporately. And God is here with us because He's with each and every single one of us individually. So He takes up residence in us and then we come together corporately. And so He's here in every single one of us individually and corporately. Remember, the point is our confidence is in Christ. So the fact that we have a great high priest over the house of God should increase our confidence. We should understand that even though we may live in a culture that is hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are confident in Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns Christ Jesus who died? More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Romans 8, 31-34. Listen, church, we're confident in Christ, knowing that in the long run, evil will never prevail. We may be beaten for a moment. We may be weak for a moment. We may be hurt for a moment. But our confidence is in Jesus Christ, who overcomes all. We have access to God the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ, and we have a great high priest who is over the house of God, and that should cause us to be confident in Christ. Now, with that said, let's move on to verse 22, where we see that we are to draw near to God in faith. Draw near to God in faith. So we're told to draw near and to God is implied in the draw near because of what Christ has done, we can now draw near to God. How is it that we are to draw near to God? Do we approach God a certain way, or do we just come to God however it is that we want to come to God? Furthermore, why are we told to draw near to God now, especially considering that Israel was told the exact opposite. Remember Mount Sinai? They were told, do not draw near the mountain or I will strike you down. Why would we want to draw near to God if we're going to be struck down? The new covenant says, draw near to God. These verses tell us how to draw near to God. First it says with a true heart. And then it says with full assurance of faith. And then it says having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And finally having our bodies washed with pure water. So let's look at that real quick. First it says draw near to God with a true heart. That means a sincere heart or a genuine heart. There is no hypocrisy in our heart. It means that we are coming to God as a genuine believer. Not coming to God pretending to be someone that we are not or to look, uh, or, or in order to look good for other people while having hidden sin in our lives. We're coming with a true heart. Christian, you live your life not to please other people, but to please God. 
who sees everything. He sees directly into your heart. He knows your thought before you even think it. He knows the motive of why you did what you did. Which is why we're told in Scripture to take captive every thought and bring it into obedience to Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians 10.5. The idea is that we are, we are we're formerly slaves to sin. But we are obedient to God. It means that we are, we are growing towards holiness in our lives. It means that we are becoming more and more like Christ. You see, being a Christian is not about meeting a bunch of moral standards in our life, but it is a matter of loving obedience to God with a heart that has been transformed by the grace of God. In order to do this, we confess our sins in our life that we, we may, we may be able to fool others and we may be able to trick others and, and other people may not be may not know the sin that's in our life and the secret sin that we are holding on to. They may not know it, but you will never fool God. If your heart is not sincere before God, if you do not draw near with a true heart, you are we, we're, we're living a life of self-deception. If you think that, oh, well, I can just draw near to God with a with a heart that's not true, then you are living a life of self-deception. John Owen points out, without this sincerity of heart, there can be neither boldness nor confidence in our access to God. So we draw near with a true heart. But secondly, he says that we draw near with a full assurance of faith. In chapter 11, the author will tell us, um, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Here, he talks about a full assurance of faith. Have a godly faith and confidence as you come to the Lord. Faith is a gift from God and a responsibility. We are saved through faith, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. And we are to walk by faith, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. What is faith? It is not a blind leap like we often hear. The reason it is not a blind leap is because faith rests in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The more we know Jesus, the more we trust in Him. And the more we trust in Him, the more we prove He is faithful. And the more confident that we grow in our faith, we come with confident faith based on what Christ has already done. Thirdly, he says, we come having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And this is a picture of the high priest cleansing and washing himself before he entered into the presence of the Holy of Holies. The point is that this ritual cleansed the outer man, which is why it was done, but the blood of Christ cleanses the inner man. The blood of Christ cleanses the conscience from dead works to serve a living God. We come with our conscience which which realizes that we are not guilty because we have been justified by the grace of God through faith. We come with confidence and a conscience that knows that God has pronounced over us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Furthermore, it is a revealing that we can only approach God through Christ who is the only one that can cleanse our conscience. And then finally, he says that we come having our bodies washed with pure water this is a reference to baptism, but not just baptism. In the Greek, both the sprinkling clean and the washed are perfect participles, which is referencing a past action that has ongoing results. So both of these take place at salvation, but the effects are lasting. So baptism is the New Testament, uh, in the New Testament is closely linked with salvation, and it is not salvation, but it's linked with salvation. It's not a part of salvation, but it's an outward picture of what God has done inwardly, naming, namely the cleansing of our hearts by faith. The idea is that a purification takes place in our life that is accomplished by the regenerating and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, which baptism is a picture of. It is a picture of an inward purity that is manifested in outward behavior. That begins at salvation. And so the idea is that both of these, a clean conscience and a washed body, stem from salvation. And if we do not have a clean conscience, 
or we're aware of sin in our lives, we will not draw near to God. Therefore, we must confess our sin so that we will draw near. Now, here's what I want to ask you this morning. Do you realize the significance of what Christ has done for you in order for you to draw near to God? Do you draw near to God today? You see, so many Christians go through their life wasting time, going years without ever exercising the gifts given to them to draw near to God. They don't spend consistent time in prayer. They don't spend consistent time in studying God's Word. They think, I can go to church on Sunday morning and that's enough. The only time they pray is when a crisis hits. Don't miss it. We draw near into the presence of God in faith because of what Christ has accomplished for us. And it should be a priority to us. It shouldn't just be an afterthought. Oh, I guess I'll draw near to God now. Oh, it's Sunday. Time to draw near to God on Sunday morning. Time to draw near. What Christ has done Don't waste that, church. We draw near to God. We live a life that draws near to God. Not only draw near, but He says, hold fast. Draw near to God and hold fast the confession of our hope. So, first He says, draw near. And now He says, hold fast. We made a public confession of our faith at baptism. And that confession should cause us to persevere. We hold fast in our faith and our obedience when the world calls us to to fall and fail. We hold fast. When we are asked to compromise our faith, we hold fast. In the face of sin, we hold fast. As Christians, we have confessed Christ and we need to hold fast to the confession. We should remember that when we are faced with temptation, that we hold fast to Christ. Now, hold fast implies that there is some sort of danger. Something is trying to pry me loose from my confession. I need to hold fast. These Hebrew Christians were surrounded by people who wanted them to fail. Wanted them to give in. That were persecuting them. And they're surrounded with Jewish friends who were protected by the Roman law. And the temptation for these Hebrew Christians is this well, I could still have a relationship with God even if I go back to Judaism, and at least I won't be persecuted. And that would be good. But the author says, What? Hold fast to your confession. Hold fast. You hold to that confession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you waver from it. Because that confession is the only hope we have. Don't fail. Don't fail to trust in the promises that we have. Some would say, well, we don't have persecution in America yet. But you know what? We are faced with pressure to conform to the ways of the world. The world's desires. The world's standards. It's far easier to blend in at your job or at school than to take a stand for Christ. It's far easier to be silent than to be a witness for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It is far easier to blend in than to be looked at as some sort of religious fanatic. But the author is saying, no, hold fast to your confession. It means something. Confession of what? He tells us. Confession of hope. Hope is what we are certain of but have yet to realize. This is the promises of God. We just sang this morning. Standing on the promises of God. Hope means that we are certain of God's promises. 
we may not have realized them, but we are certain of them. We are certain of them because God is the guarantee of the promise. Many will come and mock us. Say to us, where is the promise of His coming? Peter says, but you know what? They fail to realize is that the day of the Lord will come and it will come like a thief in the night bringing its inescapable judgment. And for this reason, we should be people of holy conduct and godliness. Second Peter chapter 3. We have hope because He who promised is faithful. We hold fast to our profession of faith and the promises of God because, because He who promised is faithful. Because the One that makes the promises is faithful. Our hope is based on the promises of God that Jesus is our High Priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our hope is based on what God has promised. Now don't you dare miss this. Our confidence is not based on the promise that God has made to us. It's not. You know what our our hope is based upon? Our confidence is based upon the promises that God made to Christ. Do you doubt the promise that God the Father has made to God the Son? He promised to make Him a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Do you doubt that? He promised to let the sacrifice of Christ count as a sacrifice for our sin. Do you doubt that? Do you doubt the promise God made to His Son? Do you doubt the promise that God made to the Son when He said, I will give you all that belong to you? God will do exactly as He has said. We trust in the promise of God even when we lack faith. Even when it's so hard to trust in the promise of God because we understand and we know that God will never break a promise to His Son. Don't ever think that the Father will not fulfill His Word to His Son. He will fulfill His promise. And His promise to His Son as that we would, is that we would be delivered to Him. The Son will never let you go. So draw near. Hang on. Because God has promised to His Son. Hold fast, Christian. Don't lose hope. We have confidence in Christ. <clears throat> We draw near to God in faith. We hold fast the confession of our hope. And finally, consider how to encourage one another towards love and good deeds. Consider how to encourage one another towards love and good deeds. The author makes a shift to the present in verse 24. We are told to consider one another. The command is not to love one another and then perform good deeds. Though I would say that there is plenty of Scripture to support that idea. But the command here is, is consider one another. And then in verse 25, is, it gives an explanation of how it is that we consider one another. And so we are to consider how to encourage one another towards love and good deeds. And so it says, consider. Now, if we consider something, it means that we have to give some thought to it, right? It means you have to focus on someone. It means, okay, now i got to take my focus and put it on someone else. It means I have to ask, what does this person need? Or how can I help this person if I'm considering them? You know, when I was down in uh, Louisville this past week, this, this man came up to me. And he was frustrated because, because there was, I think, 12,000 people there in total. And, and this man is trying to stop people. And everybody's just walking by him. Nobody will stop and talk to this man. And it's kind of frustrating to him. And, you know, we could say what we always like to say in our heart, right? Don't we always say, well, that's probably just a bum. That's probably just someone... They're just wanting money. And if I stop and give him money, what do we always think? If I give this person money, he's going to go buy alcohol with it. Or maybe he's going to use it for drugs. So I shouldn't even stop and talk to him. In fact, the group I was with just kept on walking. 
And I had to make a decision. Am I going to consider this man? Or am I going to do like everybody else? And just keep on walking. And so I said, okay, I guess I'll talk to this guy. And so I said, what, what do you need? And he's fumbling around and he's got his, his debit card out. And he's got his driver's license out. And he's got his cell phone out. He says, listen, he said, I ran out of gas and my debit card's being declined. Can you help me? I just need like a gallon of gas to get home. Two dollars. I'm thinking, well, you know, I just saw probably a couple hundred people walk by this guy and nobody stopped. And I had to consider him. So I said, hey, I'll tell you what, I'll give you five bucks. If you use it on something else, that's your problem, not my problem. Sir, I promise you it's going into my, my gas. I mean, he was dressed fine. I mean, he had a debit card and a driver's license and a cell phone. He offered to call the police. He may have taken me, but it's not my problem. I decided well, I was going to consider that man. I gave him five bucks to get gas. We're told to consider one another. we got to stop. We get so busy, we don't even consider one another. We're doing our own thing. We've got our own thing to do. I'm busy this week. i got, I got this and this and this and this and this to do. i got to get over here. i got to do this. I don't have time to consider someone. But it says to consider. But it says to consider how to stir up. That word stir up means provoke. In fact, it's usually used in a negative sense, right? But here it's being used to grab the reader's attention. So instead of saying, you know, provoke to anger, it says, think about how we will provoke one another towards love and good deeds. This also means as Christians that love takes effort. It takes effort. You have to work at it. It's not automatic. It requires action and thought and effort on our part. These verses are telling us that we we have to consider one another, that we have to show concern for one another, that we have to we have to meet one another's needs, that we strengthen one another in their weakness, that we help one another out through every trial and temptation that they're faced with. It means that we love, we love in act. And not in just word. It's so easy for us to say, oh yeah, I love my brother and sister in Christ until it comes time to dig into our pocketbook and feed the poor or visit the sick or shut-ins or look after orphans and children that are in broken homes and single parents and become a friend to the lonely and give direction to the empty that have no purpose in their life. Then it becomes something else. Because now we've moved past being able to say, oh, I love my brother or sister in Christ to actually having to do something about it. Don't you understand? It takes effort. It is hard work to provoke one another towards love and good deeds. Now, the context where we consider how to encourage one another towards love and good deeds is what? It says in verse 25. Context is when we assemble together. Now let me park here for just a moment. I'm reminded of a story. Father was showing his young son through a church building and it came to a plaque on the wall. The little boy was curious and he said, Daddy, what's that, what's that plaque for? His father replied, Oh, that's a memorial to those who have died in the service. The little boy said, which service, Daddy? The morning or the evening? People have all kinds of reasons. They don't go to church. And guess what? Some of the early Christians had stopped going to church due to persecution, apostasy, arrogance. Maybe even they had their feelings hurt. And now they claim that they could worship God better alone. 
almost invariably when people do not go to church, it is for a selfish reason. Their focus is on themselves and not on God and not on others. Instead of thinking how they can be used by God to encourage one another towards love and good deeds, they think that their needs aren't being met or the church is unloving or they just don't have what I want. We can go to church after church after church after church that has lost people in their church because, well, I just wasn't being fed. Or they didn't have the cool children's ministry. Or their pastor's too bald with a too big of a beard. Or whatever. You know? We have all kinds of reasons. And they are all selfish. You can... Practice your faith alone, but you can't encourage others towards love and good deeds alone. In order to do that, you have to gather together with the saints in the body of Christ. Listen, we gather together to meet with Christ in a special way as a part of corporate worship. Corporate worship allows God's Word to minister to you in a way that it it does not do when you are in isolation. When you come together corporately, God's Word goes forth and ministers to you. Theologically, or theological points are best learned through a corporate gathering. A developing of a love for community is done best in a corporate gathering. Let me just be abundantly clear about it. Just in case there's confusion. To be a good Christian is not possible if you are abstaining from assembling yourself together corporately. And if that's not clear enough, let me be even clearer. If you abstain from corporate worship for various reasons for an extended period of time, it is sinful. Plain and simple. It's sinful. You say, well, pastor, we're all here. You're preaching to the choir. I know, but that's okay. We still need to gather together corporately. We should think twice before we... Missing church should be the last thing that we want to do, not the first thing that we want to do. But the author doesn't stop there. Because he adds, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That word encourage means to earnestly support or encourage a response or action. It has the idea of coming alongside someone. And when it says, as you see the day drawing near, that's a reference to the coming day of judgment when we will all give an account. Listen to me, Christian. You are your brother's keeper. The worst phrase that you could possibly say as a Christian Am I my brother's keeper? Don't ever say that to me. Because I'll say, yes you are. It is impossible for your pastor to shepherd every single person who comes to this church. I can't do it. And if this body is going to be a healthy body, every single member of this congregation needs to take some responsibility in encouraging their fellow members instead of being self-seeking. That means if you see that someone is drifting away or you see that someone is dropping out, you don't say, oh boy, I better call the pastor. So-and-so's missed three weeks. Better call him up. If you want to tell me, that's fine. But what I'm saying is that you encourage them. You help them deal with their issues. You ask them what's keeping them away. If they are in conflict with another believer, you help them work through it. And by the way, helping them work through it is not sitting there saying, oh yeah, you are absolutely right. That person just mistreated you. They're the most terrible person on the face of this earth. That's not helping someone work through their issue. No. Open up the Scripture 
and look and see how it is that we deal with conflict with another brother or sister in Christ. Go to Matthew chapter 18 if you want to know where to go. And it tells you how to deal with conflict. You help them work through it. You help them follow biblical principles. You do not allow them to isolate themselves from the rest of the body of believers. You don't say, oh, that's okay. So-and-so's not coming anymore. I guess that's their problem. You don't allow it. And you don't depend on your pastor to do it all. You say, i got to do something. Because you're a body of believers. And if they isolate themselves from the rest of the sheep, it will only be a matter of time before a wolf picks them off. So I encourage you, brothers and sisters, you are your brother's keeper. Let me tell you something else that these verses imply to us this morning. And that is this. We must know one another. This means that we have to go beyond our superficial knowledge of one another. And again, it is impossible for me as a pastor to know everyone in this church well. I can't do it. It can't be done. But each of us can. And should know some fairly well. And that's not to say, oh, well, you know, i got to get my little group of friends and i got to know them better. And I, it's us four no more. Nobody else is allowed in. But it does mean that you gather outside Sunday mornings and you get to know people. It does mean that some of you should know your pastor well. You should. If you're like, well, well, Pastor, I don't want to know you well. I'm, I'm afraid. Well, I might find out. Well, I'm not afraid of what you might find out. I'm an open book. Some of you probably need to speak some truth in my. There's sometimes I probably do something that's really stupid. And you go, that was stupid. You gotta know each other. I love church. I do. I love Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings is crucial. I just said for theology and for instruction, it's crucial. To equip the saints, it's crucial. It's so important to come together on Sunday morning. I love this time. I love to preach the Word of God. I love to encourage people and, and sometimes step on people's toes and sometimes call you out if you're not doing something right. I love it. Because that's what, how God has geared me. But you have to encourage one another in their Christian walk outside of Sunday morning. It means you got to say, hey, can we have lunch together? Hey, want to hang out? Hey, let's do this. Let's spend some time together. One last thing in relation to encouraging one another towards love and good. And that is this. You must be intentional. You must be intentional. The hardest thing in this world is to take your eyes off yourself. It's hard. It's so hard just to say, okay, it's time for me to stop thinking about my needs, my family, and my money, my job, and my this, and my, my, my. It's so hard. It's what I want. What I like. What makes me feel good. And it's me, 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 me. You have to think about others. It's a problem with the church today. We are so inward focused. That we never look outward. If you see someone at church and they seem lonely, or they seem depressed, or they seem hurting, or whatever it might be, 
That means that you take the initiative. It means that you are paying attention. It means that you are being intentional. That you go up to them and you talk to them and you maybe set a time to meet with them and you say, hey, how can I help you with what you're struggling with? What can I do? You have to be intentional. We can't miss the words of Christ. As I prayed this morning when when Christ was asked about the commandments, He said, the greatest is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Church, don't you see that we spur one another on towards love and good deeds by loving our neighbor as ourselves. And so here's what I ask you this morning. Will you prayerfully consider this message this morning? Will you ask God, God, where am I falling short? Are you confident in Christ? Are you drawing near to God in faith? This is really the foundation of everything. That you draw near to God if you are not drawing near. You will lack in all other areas. Maybe this morning you need to hold fast to the confession of your hope. Or perhaps you find yourself wavering. Or maybe you see where you need to improve on considering how to encourage one another towards love and good deeds. Think through some specific ways that you can improve in different areas of your life and ask God to help you have a confident practice of your faith. Say, Lord, I want to practice my faith in confidence, not because of something in me, but because of what Christ has done for me so that others will see my love for the Lord and they will be drawn. That's how the early church grew, saints. They loved God and they loved one another and everybody saw it. And it exploded. Which leads me to believe the church today so often is failing in one or both of those areas. That's why they refuse. If you need prayer this morning, I'll be standing down front. I'd love to pray with you. If you need to pray in your pew, you can pray in your pew. You can grab me afterwards. Say, hey, Pastor, I want to pray with you. If you feel like the Lord's calling you to make some sort of decision, I'd be glad to talk with you about that this morning. I'll be standing right down front as we get ready to sing.